it's my pleasure to introduce Courtney Falk to, uh, as our speaker today, and he probably needs no introduction because he's a serious graduate. He's uh, very familiar with the program, very familiar with the campus. Uh, he's been uh, uh, working uh, in the last 10 years in government, academic, and public sector, earned his PhD here at Purdue, as I said, and uh, he's currently working as a senior research scientist for Opta's Global Threat Intelligence Center. So I'll just turn it over to Courtney. Thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, I finished my PhD um, almost two years ago now, so feels a little weird still being on this side of the podium as opposed to every Wednesday being in the seats. Um, I work for Optiv in a small unit called the Global Threat Intelligence Center. Optiv's in MSS, a managed security uh, solutions provider. So we're a little different inside Optiv in that instead of focusing on internal uh, customer networks, we actually look externally. Uh, we look at trends that are going on uh, outside the company in the greater world uh, to help inform our customers as to what kind of threats they might see in the future. Um, I, I actually work in Indianapolis. I'm going to be back um, for the symposium. So if anybody has uh, any questions or further discussions you'd like to have, I'd be happy to make time for you. Otherwise, you can email me at the uh, decoded address. Um, I'd be happy to give you a copy of the slides with notes and URLs to the sources that I'm going to cite. And this will also eventually end up on ResearchGate. Um, I worked for a while in the intelligence community for the U.S. government. Um, I then worked in private industry before doing the Ph.D. So, uh, like Jerry mentioned, I've touched on all three um, facets of the security industry. And um, marketing would like me to tell you that none of this information is going to reveal anything about our customers' uh, networks or breaches. Uh, everything I'm going to talk about is open source. And to prove that I'm not shilling for any cryptocurrency, I don't actually own anything, nor do I actually have I owned anything in the past, so I'm not going to make any money off this. Uh, real quick, I'm going to touch on uh, what threat intelligence is and what it, how we practice it in the GTIC. Uh, a brief primer on cryptocurrencies, but the meat of what I'm going to talk about is how we see cryptocurrency used in cyber attacks, which is mostly going to consist of cyber crime. And time permitting, uh, I'll touch on some of the social aspects of it, uh, the economics, the policy, and the governance uh, aspects, and I'd like to leave uh, five to ten minutes at the end for Q&A. So uh, if you read back through this later, um, I'll leave this in the slide deck if you want to dereference any of the terms I'm going to use, um, but I'll try to explain them as I go along. So threat intelligence, uh, we in the GTIC are mostly coming from a military intelligence background. So intelligence to us is taking raw data, applying human analysis to it, and producing a product out from that. It could be a brief summary or a snippet, like a warning, or it could be a more in-depth product. Uh, what we're grinding on right now is our annual report which is modeled after the uh, National Intelligence Estimate. So it's about 40, 60 pages where we try to predict where we think uh, trends will be going in the next year. And unfortunately, we're, we've got a pretty good track record. So in, in our work, we, we track three different aspects. We track actors, who are the people behind the attacks. We uh, track campaigns, which are sustained attacks across targets. And we uh, look at the TTP and the tools and how people are carrying out the attacks. So the hardest part 
is the ambiguity and the uncertainty. Um, sometimes you have poor quality data, sometimes you have no data, sometimes you get into um, a kind of ironic situation like the attacks with uh, WannaCry or NotPetya where you have a ridiculous amount of data but it's still kind of difficult to discern um, patterns from it. So you're looking to corroborate sources and um, come to a conclusion based on what limited information or circumstantial evidence you might have at hand. So if you've ever had to deal with anyone uh, from the military intelligence background, you'll see this diagram. It's either four or five steps, but it's always the same cycle every single time. So what you start with is the requirements phase. So it's like uh, writing a research question. You can't actually start doing the research until you have the question in mind. And then once you have the question, you gather the data, you perform your analysis on it, and once you have the analysis, your product, be it uh, like a long-term, uh, long-form report, or perhaps small pieces of machine-readable intelligence, can get pushed out. Um, like uh, we we have servers that our customers have access to, where we push out like signatures for malware or network traffic that they can then use to block at their perimeters. Um, as an example, of the scope of the problem. This is my uh, my Chrome bookmarks. This is just bookmarks dealing with uh, cryptocurrency-related attacks. Uh, this was yesterday. So I have more data than I could possibly talk about today, so uh, let's keep moving. Does anybody here own any cryptocurrency? No? Has anybody done crypto mining before? No? So the core idea of basically all the cryptocurrencies is there is a ledger, and the ledger records all the transactions that have happened uh, using that currency. And the ledger is actually distributed across this network of users. The mining process, which you'll hear about a lot, is when new entries are added to the ledger. And it's called mining because of the work put into it. These um, cryptographic uh, functions are intentionally chosen to be um, CPU intensive. And we'll touch on that also. Um, but it's called mining, but all it really is is basically being like a public notary. You get a stack of transactions in, you perform math on it, and then you add it to the, um, the ledger as the new blessed entry. Those entries are coming from transactions, goods, and services. Those are being um, signed off on by wallets, and wallets are just... Um, the cryptographic keys that are used in these transactions. And it's, it's a confusing term because there are software wallets, there are hardware wallets. I have a paper wallet, which just means that my crypto keys are printed on a piece of paper that I've written down. Um, so if you wanted to steal my 0.005 of Monero, you would have to physically take this piece of paper from me, which means I can't use that cryptocurrency very quickly. But in my case, that's not a huge concern. But if you want to cut to the chase and you want to turn your euro or your dollar into cryptocurrencies, you have to go to the exchanges. So the exchanges are where you actually take your, your fiat, your government-issued currency, and exchange it, which is usually, in this case, limited to um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. So despite the dozens and hundreds of different coins you'll see, you can't actually just buy those straight. Mining is the backbone of the cryptocurrency. 
Um, when it began, it was enough to have a CPU in your desktop or maybe your server that you would um, be able to produce results. It's really a race condition. The problem is given out to the whole network and the first person who can get the answer gets the reward, which is you get the transaction fee and with some currencies you get um, a monetary uh, reward in that currency. So it's incentivized. Um, after the CPU miners, they developed the graphics processors, which um, I can mine Monero like four to five times faster with my GPU as opposed to my CPU. But then became uh, the application-specific integrated circuits. So these are actual pieces of silicon that are etched and designed to perform a single function. So like for Bitcoin, you'll get an ASIC that can crank through uh, the SHA-256 function. And we'll see those real quick. And they, they come to dominate. But if you're a little guy, you can join a mining pool. So a lot of little guys can get together and pool their resources and you get <coughs> fractional amounts of what the whole pool is rewarded. But um, at this point with cr currencies like Bitcoin, you, you basically have to go big or go home. And uh, these Russian nuclear scientists, they, um, they set their sights pretty high. Um, but we'll talk about OPSEC here in a minute. They might have set their sights a little too high. This is uh, a buddy of mine. He works for Apple, but he lives up the road in Valpo. Uh, he's standing next to um, his cryptocurrency rig. For a while, he was doing Bitcoin. He's got like uh, four, four uh, rack mount units and like uh, 12 or 16 single units. He had, um, he said, two dedicated 30 amp circuits in his basement just for this setup. Um, and he was spending $500 a month in electricity. Um, I didn't get a clear answer on whether or not he was actually breaking even on that or not. But this is what he's up against. And this is a, um, a Bitcoin mine in China. And there's a good link to this uh, Vice Motherboard documentary on YouTube. And it's really interesting to see the setup they have going. They, they actually have uh, on-site IT 24-7 who live there. So what's the market looking like right now? Um, the market capitalization, how much money is actually invested in these right now. Um, about 180 billion is written Bitcoin right now. This was uh, yesterday afternoon. And you can start to see some of the uh, interesting fluctuations and volatility that have only really happened in the last uh, year or two. So that's what cryptocurrency is. How is it actually being used in relation to cyber attacks? Um, we partner with a company called Intsites. Um, it's uh, out of Tel Aviv. They collect um, data from hacker forums um, in the deep web and dark net. So they do things like they create fake identities and they use these identities to get into the hacker forums and become trusted. And then they can start um, using their bots to start scraping the data. So I did a quick search for uh, some of the better known cryptocurrencies and here are some of the results I came up with. Um, Bitcoin, far and away, the most talked about. Um, and you can start to see, once you remove Bitcoin, you can start to see the breakdown between some of the secondary coins, but they don't, they don't even really come close yet. How the coins are used, um, we'll talk about here in a second, but it varies um, the use case from coin to coin. So this guy is talking about Bitcoin. He's, uh, he's selling a Trojan, which will actually 
steal Bitcoin from your wallet. So it'll either steal the key or it'll initiate transactions using your wallet. You, you log in or you fire up the wallet software in your PC and then they'll be able to transfer money out. Um, the other big topic I saw regarding to Bitcoin was a lot of like um, how-to guides or tutorials, like what is Bitcoin and how can you make money off Bitcoin? And people were trying to sell that, like the, um, I forget the guy's name, the guy who wore the suit with the question marks and trying to sell you guides on how to make money from the government. Monero is different, um, and you'll be hearing a lot more about Monero. This guy is selling um, actual software to be run on a desktop or PC. So you'll put it on a victim's machine, you'll pop them with like phishing or an exploit kit, You'll put a miner on their box and their PC is going to literally make money for you and you won't have to spend the electricity, obviously. And the other use case is instead of exploiting individual boxes and putting it on there, let's exploit a web server and we'll put on that web server a piece of code that will get people to mine Monero when they come to our website. So we've talked about uh, briefly these two different use cases. Um, we've talked about um, Bitcoin um, and we've talked about Monero. Bitcoin is still seen mostly in ransomware situations. So ransomware is that special class of malware. It gets on your machine and it'll lock access to files, um, usually via cryptography. So it'll uh, digitally encrypt all your files and then you'll have to pay the ransom in order to get the uh, private key to then decrypt all the files. Bitcoin is the most popular for that because Bitcoin has the first mover advantage. It has the largest market share and it's the easiest coin for victims to get a hold of. So to increase the likelihood of someone actually paying the ransom, they don't want to make it too difficult to pay. So thank goodness for that. Um, we, we actually had a question come in at one point from a customer that basically said, how do I buy Bitcoin? Like at this point, I know I screwed up, but I just need my computers back. And there, there are actually uh, ATMs and the exchanges and uh, debit cards that you can use to buy Bitcoin now. Um, but remember, just because you pay the ransom doesn't mean they're actually going to give you the keys. Or more interestingly, um, there might not be keys. So um, specific to ransomware attacks, it's becoming apparent that some of these ransomware attacks are actually uh, destructive attacks, where the difference between encrypting something and throwing away the key and just deleting the file, I mean, it's the same thing. If you throw away the crypto key, you're never gonna get access to that file again. But there's an interesting aspect where if you suggest there's hope you can then get them to be distracted and spend more time trying to get that back. The other use case for cryptocurrencies is in uh, crypto jacking. And crypto jacking is a situation where you hijack either a desktop or a web browser to mine a cryptocurrency for you. And that's where Monero comes in. And it's more popular than Bitcoin for two main reasons. The first reason is that you can still mine Monero with a CPU or a GPU. You don't need these special ASIC chips. And that was actually part of the design of Monero. The other aspect that was also designed into Monero is the privacy. You essentially cannot track transactions through the Monero ledger 
without that person's special, it's called a view key. So you, the victim can mine Monero and you can see it go into the Monero ledger, but you have no way to track that back. So those are the two things that really make it attractive. Um, I talked briefly about exploit kits. Um, exploit kits are basically just malicious web pages you get redirected to with like either a phishing link or um, a hacked web page and they have a set of exploits that they'll try against your web browser. So they redirect you, they pop your web browser and then they're on your box. And the trend we're seeing is that it used to be they would serve m ransomware. So like WannaCry and whatnot. They're actually shifting to using um, crypto miners now. So they'll exploit your box and they'll put like XMR on and then you'll be um, mining Monero for somebody and not really know it. There is um, the interesting scenario of Bitcoin used as evidence. So if you remember uh, Ross Ulbricht who went by the Dread Pirate Roberts who ran the original Silk Road, I think we're up to Silk Road 3.0 now, he got arrested they were able to uh, get a hold of his wallet so they knew what keys he used personally. His, uh, his defense was, yeah, I started, I started Silk Road, but I wasn't running it when you said I did something illegal. But they got his wallet. They were actually able to use those keys to go back through the ledger and see all his transactions and actually establish forensically, at this point, these payments from Silk Road went into your personal wallet that was on your laptop when we arrested you. At that point, he was convicted. The interesting that ha thing that happened afterwards was Bitcoin shot up, and then um, at least one of the arresting officers, or it might have been Secret Service, um, ended up stealing some of the Bitcoin out of the digital evidence, and uh, he went to jail too. So with crypto mining, we've already talked about how it's popular to use Monero. You, originally it was we would, we would get on an individual box and we would install a crypto miner. This started out being like IT people with access to the backend servers. They would find a box and they'd install a Bitcoin miner and be like, well, you know, my company will pay for the electricity. No one's really getting hurt. That then changed to using worms. So um, at the same time that WannaCry was going on, a separate worm was spreading and dropping a cryptocurrency miner, and that wasn't even the first instance of that. The easy fix is that organizations should just blacklist all the miners. So a lot of the mining software that's used is open source, so they'll go directly to XMR or Nightminer and download the, the whole package and use it. So they're not actually recompiling or redesigning their own miner it should be fairly easy and automatic to blacklist all these binary images and also some of the signature traffic. There, there's really no reason to be running this in your organization. Um, the other instance uh, of mining crypto jacking is when it gets injected into your web browser. That's also open source. You can go and you can get the, it's CoinHive is the most popular software. It's on GitHub. Um, but if you somehow get to some place and someone's running a miner in your browser, the easiest step is close your browser, was the advice we were actually giving our customers. It's you close your browser and it stops running. Uh, people have gotten a little smarter. They've actually started creating like one by one pixel sized new browser instances. So you can close the one you accidentally started mining in and they'll still be able to mine. 
Um, and they also attack third-party um, sites like um, ad networks or uh, someone uh, exploited like an accessibility, like a handicap accessibility add-on and inserted the crypto miner into that. CoinHive started with this good idea. The idea was um, we can monetize websites in a different way. The old model was advertising and the new mine model is crypto mining. Uh, Mega.co, which is the New Zealand upload site, they did this. Um, the problem with their approach was they didn't tell anyone they were going to do it. They were like, we're doing an experiment. And people noticed and got a little upset. And then after the fact, they explained what was going on. So that was poor marketing on their side. Uh, Salon, the blog and news site, they're doing it. If you browse to them with an ad blocker enabled, it'll give you a, redirect you to a page and it'll say, so you're using a web browser. We really, you know, we need to monetize this in some way. Learn about how we could learn, monetize the other way by clicking this link. And if you click the learn more link, it automatically starts crypto mining. So while you're learning, they've already started doing it in the background, which is also uh, semi-ethical, uh, bad business. But really what you want to do is you want to, yes? I just want to ask one. Mm -hmm. How much does your performance change on your browser or on your PC, whether you get, you know, CoinHive or Monero? Um, basically it's going to peg the CPU. Um, at least half the cores. So if you have like a four core machine, it's probably gonna peg two of the CPUs. So um, that at the bottom, the OPSEC downside, that, that's the big problem. So if you open Task Manager, and all of a sudden you see that two of your CPUs are semi-idle and two are totally pegged, I mean, you'll also probably like hear the fans going. That's your first indication that something's wrong. So these kind of attacks are pretty difficult to hide because it doesn't take any special forensic digging to find this. It's not like a rootkit that's sitting in your kernel. Um, so one of the early attacks and one of the best ones was uh, Showtime. So someone popped uh, Showtime, they modified the web page and started serving crypto uh, CoinHive specifically. And that's like the ideal use case. You want long session times. People are going to come on your web page and stay for a long time. Um, so like that kind of video streaming service would be ideal or audio streaming, something like that. Um, another interesting use case was someone found it in a Starbucks Argentina. Someone had exploited the router. So you connect to the free Wi-Fi. Someone's exploited that. And inside um, the proxy, basically, they're rewriting all your HTTP requests and they're inserting the CoinHive code into it. So there's really no way to get around that. Um, maybe someday Comcast might pick up on that or whatever dubious ISP. Um, you'll see this in phony mobile phone apps, um, you know, uh, flashlight apps, all these generic things are a great way to insert um, miners in. You know, grandma might not know. She might want an app and pick the first one. I'm not convinced that this is a great business case. Uh, some of the numbers I've seen suggest that you'll get like a, a hash a second's the measure. <clears throat> you'll get roughly 30 hashes a second. So if you could do that all day, you'd earn about four cents of Monero. So figure you need to keep, what, 
the equivalent enough people to keep constant processing all day long and you need thousands and thousands of people to make uh, dozens or hundreds of dollars, I'm not sure yet where the money's actually going or if they're actually making all that money. So the worm set I talked about, the minor spreaders, they've been around for a while. Um, the um, Edelkos, however you pronounce that, that was the one that was going on at the same time as WannaCry. So WannaCry was the ransomware that demanded the Bitcoin. That has been tentatively linked to North Korean threat actors. Um, and that was an interesting scenario in that no one bothered to collect the ransom for a long time. So I talked about having lots of data and having poor conclusions. That's an example of a situation where we know a lot, but we can't understand very much. And I mean, the most recent attacks are from just a couple weeks ago. Um, the ADB bug in the Android phones, it was like a week later that that was actually monetized into a miner. So we talked about how to get the victims to make money for you. I think that's the most interesting part of it because that's like the novel use case to exploiting someone's computer. It used to be you exploit a computer to either make them a botnet to use their bandwidth or you exploit a computer to steal their information like their bank or their credit card information and resell that. But now you can literally use someone's electricity to make money for you. So that's, that's what I find to be really interesting. It's a whole new use case. This is the old use case, straight theft, but that seems to be where the money is. Um, the wallet providers have gotten smart. They're like banks in that they offer multi-factor authentication now. So like um, your cell phone you can use as the out-of-band communication or your email, something like that. Um, so the attackers have actually moved on to do voice phishing, SMS phishing, attacking these channels in conjunction to regular phishing attacks. So multi-part sophisticated attacks to get into your wallets. But the exchanges are like the banks and hitting the bank is where the money actually is. Mt. Gox, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. CoinCheck is still very new. Um, I don't have a lot of good information on that yet, but it's looking like it might exceed Mt. Gox in the amount that it was hit for. One of the interesting use cases um, or situations is the Distributed Autonomous Organization. It was built on Ethereum. Ethereum is significantly different from Bitcoin in that Ethereum has a full virtual machine, like kind of like the Java virtual machine. So if you are on the Ethereum network, you're running this full virtual machine. What it does is allows people to write distributed ap applications. So um, they can distribute processing load, or they can distribute storage, and you're rewarded in the Ether currency. Well, DAO was a crowdsourced venture capital investment fund that had a logic flaw in its smart contract logic and uh, specifically in the transaction processing and it let someone uh, get away with about 50 million and the solution they came up with was um, called a hard fork which was after the DAO got hacked the developers decided well the only way to recover the money is to undo all the transactions after that um, theft so they created essentially a whole new currency. They hard forked it and undid. They, they took the fork back to before the attack happened. 
So now you have Ethereum and you have Ethereum Classic, where Classic still has this, um, this um, transaction in it. So that was an interesting scenario. Um, uh, the ICOs, a lot of people, the irony is that these are systems built on cryptography and provable trust. But people are so uh, rabid to buy into these initial coin offerings that they don't know who they're dealing with. And so it becomes pretty easy for someone to fish an ICO and basically just be like, oh, yeah, I can sell you this coin or this token. And people will just throw their money to these people without checking it out and surprise it. It turns out to be fake. Um, and one of the funniest situations was uh, someone sent a physical letter. A, like a handwritten letter saying basically, I know what you did last summer, you know, kind of vague on the details, but ominous, uh, demanding cryptocurrency payment. So this, that goes way back to like the Nigerian scammers. This is one of my uh, favorite attacks. So what happened was um, the attacker was providing their hosting within Tor, the onion router. Tor is a logical address space not accessible from the internet by design. They did their ransomware attack, so they got the ransomware out on machines. And the, if you ever see a ransomware, it'll come up with a screenshot saying, sucks to be you, here are the instructions for how you undo this. So the victim said, okay, I'll pay the ransom, but the web page is hosted in Tor, so you've got to use a proxy that sits between the regular internet and the Tor network. The ransomware was then supposed to go through. You go to the web page, gives you the Bitcoin address, and then you pay the, pay the uh, ransom. It didn't happen that way because the actual proxy that sat between the internet and Tor had like, uh, all you need is a regex. It would recognize when someone was including a Bitcoin address in a web page and rewrite every Bitcoin address to be their Bitcoin address. So you were essentially paying the proxy and the actual attacker behind the ransomware never even got their money. And they eventually caught on to this and realized that um, the customer friendliness of using the proxy was actually undermining their profit. So now they have like these guides for, you know, here's how you download the Tor browser. And it's real step-by-step -step stuff and some have like uh, help desks, basically. Fraud. Um, this is like Wild West stuff. It's, it's unregulated. I mean, cryptocurrency was set up to be this kind of libertarian ideal. We are free from the central banks and the central financial decision makers. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, you'll read a lot about ICOs. ICOs are initial coin offerings. They're, they're meant to be like initial public offerings in the stock market, only they create... Um, a new currency, usually on top of um, Ethereum. And then you can buy into that and people use it either to actually uh, like as a startup to start a service or basically just as a fundraising mechanism. Because essentially these, this isn't currency, this is actual financial instruments like a stock. Um, and the number of situations in which this has gone on have been ridiculous. Um, the guy up in the right is a, a spokesman for the BitConnect, BitConnect Ponzi scheme. Um, if you haven't seen him on YouTube yet, you probably will before too long. Um, if anyone guarantees you um, a guaranteed return in an investment, it's a lie. 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not a talented investor, but I can tell you if anyone says, I can guarantee 5%, 10% return on your investment, no, they're, they're lying to you. But it's not just limited to these small-time, no-name crypto offerings. Um, there's some interesting research going on as to whether or not the Bitcoin price has been artificially inflated by uh, automated bot software. And there's some compelling evidence as to whether or not that happened. Um, this was a couple years ago. So we want this, we want this cryptocurrency to be money. We want it to be an actual medium of exchange and not just an investment. But the government really wants to know where this money is going. So um, they want to be able to track large exchanges, wire transfers, remittances, um, informal money lending. Um, the money laundering process in cryptocurrency is like ridiculously easy. Uh, you've got Bitcoin, uh, just throw it through another currency. You might pay a little bit in the fees, but bring it back into Bitcoin, it's clean. Um, there's also something in Bitcoin called tumbling services, which is basically they create a bunch of um, small transfers. So you put your money into the tumbling service and it gets mixed back and forth with all these transfers. It's about the most literal metaphor to money laundering I've ever seen. And you get it back out and now um, they can't really trace it back to your wallet. There's some evidence to terror funding, but I've seen so very little of that, that's hardly on my radar. Most of what I've been seeing has been straight crime. Some of it has been um, suggested to connect to nation state actors, so I picked on North Korea for a bit. Um, and some of it might um, be evidence of tax evasion, which is complicated by the fact that I don't think the IRS has issued guidance yet on what you need to pay in the United States if you've made money off cryptocurrency. So expect that to change once someone figures out the problem. So we have a couple minutes left. Uh, I'll go through these slides real quick. This is one of my uh, favorite things to follow. Venezuela, the nation, has created its own cryptocurrency because their actual currency is garbage, more or less. The uh, official exchange rate is about 3,000 bolivar to the dollar. Um, black market, it's 226,000 to the dollar. People are getting literally paid in cartons of eggs. Um, so if I was a lawyer for someone who held large amounts of debt from the Venezuelan government, I'd be getting pretty upset about this right now because it seems like a way to circumvent debt payments and bring in new currency. The biggest problem that all cryptocurrencies are going to face is scalability. Um, some of that is utility. Um, the processors like Visa and MasterCard are faster than Bitcoin by about a factor of three. So Bitcoin has a huge, huge hurdle to, to cross yet. Uh, the fees associated with Bitcoin as it's gone exponentially higher have been ridiculous. Um, you used to be able to use it on Steam to buy video games and they dropped it because the fees were getting ridiculous and the volatility. Um, if you actually look at the Wikipedia state, uh, page talking about the gold standard, a lot of the things, uh, the problems with the gold standard are going to sound eerily familiar to cryptocurrencies. Um, the limited body of people who control the currency, um, a fixed supply of the currency, so on and so forth. 
And I talked about what happened with Ethereum in terms of we're going to make the decision to revert the whole ledger just so people, these other people can get their money back. Um, there have been other splits in the last year. People have been splitting off Bitcoin as they disagree with like the design decisions that went into it. Um, things that might not make sense or seem important um, if you just want to use it as money. And the speculation, the speculation is just ridiculous. Um, I, I can't read any post on Reddit about Bitcoin specifically or any cryptocurrency in general because half of, half of them are memes, half of them are um, just f fanboys. Um, this guy up, well, I don't know if it's a guy. This is a clipping actually from my local Carmel paper. So there's, a, there's an office um, down in Carmel that's willing to uh, help invest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for you. This is their second ad. I lost the first one. Um, I like the buy the dip because it's an admission that, you know, the value has really dropped, but that's okay. That's just the sign that you need to buy now. Uh, the fine print is a little smudged, but basically they say you have to have $100,000 to invest or we won't talk to you. And you have to have a net worth of over $2 million. So I'm, I'm a little dubious about that. Um, they also haven't responded to my uh, requests. I want to actually sit down with them and ask them about like the security challenges they face and we haven't been able to connect yet. Um, the two most recent problems have come up are, um, do you remember uh, distributed processing services like uh, SETI at home or protein folding? They're actually seeing a dip in available CPU usage. As people take their computers to make money, they're less interested in finding aliens or finding cancer drugs. And the other problem that it's just starting to become significant is that uh, environment. So yeah, we're using electricity, but you know that electricity is coming some, from somewhere. There's some kind of uh, carbon dioxide and uh, produced as a result. So we're starting to be able to measure that impact in the environment. And uh, the speculation, uh, I love this. The Long Island Ice Tea Company changed their name to Long Blockchain Corporation and their stock price tripled. Like they, they, had, no, they had no business plan ready. They're just like, oh, we're getting into blockchain. And the price shot up. Like this is the actual stock market. This isn't like Bitcoin. Kodak kind of has a plan going, um, but you know, Kodak's been slowly dying. Maersk actually has an interesting idea in terms of um, logistics and tracking, which seems to dovetail well with the distributed nature of the blockchain. But keep in mind, Maersk was one of the biggest victims affected by um, the NotPetya ransomware attack. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Maybe bringing IBM on will help. But what really embodies my problem with speculation is Dogecoin. Um, it was a cryptocurrency that was a joke, and now it's $2 billion. And that is the actual um, Dogecoin-sponsored NASCAR entry. And I, for some reason, it's taken on a life of its own. So what can you take away from this today? What can you make use of? Keep your systems patched. Um, I mean, at the time WannaCry came out, Microsoft had patched those SMB bugs uh, for several months. A year later, those same bugs are still being exploited by ransomware and crypto miner worms. Over a year later. 
That, that's unacceptable. If you have multi-factor authentication, use it. It's not gonna make you bulletproof, but every step you can make to harden your perimeter and add defense in depth is gonna help. Um, watch for unusual uh, utilization rates. If your computer suddenly slows down, if it sounds like your uh, fans are cranking pretty hard, maybe check out Task Manager and see what's running. Um, the best way to prevent phishing attacks is regular and recurring awareness training. That's probably not something you're gonna encounter much here at Purdue, but as you go out into the industry, education awareness is about the only thing that can save you. You could buy every perimeter device and still the most effective thing is uh, education and awareness. And actually I get phished by my own company a couple times a year. Um, so we'll get a kind of suspicious email and you're supposed to click on the, the phishing button. And if you get it right, it pops up with a message saying, congratulations, you're, you're not an idiot, you picked the phishing email. Um, and sometimes I click that on emails and it's like, oh, well that wasn't a test, so we'll just forward this on and blacklist it for you. As a nerd, I'm really excited by the possibilities of cryptocurrency technology, but I have not seen it utilized really effectively yet. It seems uh, beholden to the speculation, and until such a time as like the really killer business case is developed, um, I'm not sure that it's really gonna fulfill its true potential, and I find that to be kind of disappointing. So here, here's hoping. And that's all I had prepared. Um, we have about five minutes left if anybody has any questions they'd like. So, so Courtney, is this one of your growing campaigns that comes up on your radar? Do you see this consuming more time than so many other threats that are out there? Not yet. I mean, the, the ransomware is still the biggest focus. Um, this is still kind of diffuse. I mean, we talked about several different vectors of attack, several different technologies, um, but it's becoming more and more common. So one of the things we try to produce are small pieces of machine-readable intelligence, uh, indicators of compromise. So we, we try to keep that up to date such that if, if someone runs across one of these things and it gets installed on the machines, they'll detect it sooner. Things like that. Any other questions? Oh, yes, I don't understand. What is the cryptocurrency that, what is the support behind it? Because if you have some currency, there's somebody who has to support it. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything, so. Correct. Um, essentially, it's speculation. I mean, some cryptocurrencies like Venezuela's um, they talk about it being backed by their natural resources, their oil and their diamonds and their gasoline. How, how that works isn't really clear. It, that might be like buying um, a future uh, or another security, like you can buy um, oil, futures, so on and so forth. But things like Bitcoin, the, the price is entirely, um, it's more like stocks. It's entirely based on what people value it at personally. Um, and that's what makes it vulnerable to exploitation by things like bots. Um, a lot of, uh, do you know about penny stocks? 
Yeah, so a lot of the really small coins are vulnerable to pump and dump the same way as penny stocks are. And pump and dump is where one person, like the Wolf of Wall Street movie, what they were doing with pump and dump. They would get a lot of excitement. They'd bring people in to invest in a coin they already own. When the price goes up, the original pumpers sell it out for a profit and leave people behind with a devalued currency. So it's, it's all perception at this point. So everything is virtual. You, you don't have anything to basically show for it. Some people, they buy it, but as I said, when they talk about these resistance levels or whatever, all of, it, all of a sudden from 20,000, it goes to 6,000. As I said, it doesn't make sense to me at least. I, I don't understand it. No. And I, I didn't take economics, so I, I can't give you a good economics explanation other than speculation. Sometimes when they talk about resistance level, it's based on a technical analysis, yes. which may have nothing to do with fundamentals. Yes. So you can look at it technically and say, oh, yeah, the, it keeps hitting this point and going back up. That must be a resistance point or, or, you know, or a support point, depending upon which one. But that doesn't mean fundamentally it's still solid. It just appears that way. Yeah. Well, I know about that. I'm just saying because when they're talking about resistance level or something, you, have, you have produce something or your profit goes down or something, but everything over here is just virtual. You don't have anything to show for it or talk about it. You don't know whether it is right or not. It's a lie or it's not a lie. <laughs> what it is, I don't know. Well, and you see these uh, indicators of problems and things like the high volatility, like Bitcoin varying by $10,000 in a matter of months. Or um, at one point, the South Korean government was going to ban cryptocurrency exchanges in South Korea, and the Bitcoin price dropped. And then a day later, the South Korean government said, no, we never said that. That's total rumor. So on, on this rumor, it affected the price of this currency by thousands of dollars. And that doesn't speak to strong fundamentals to me. Any other questions? Terrific. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.